0: Tim and Sam's podcast. 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 Sam and we have, we have, a have a podcast which is really, really podcast. great. They serve.
1: Hello, welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. We've returned from our summer holidays refreshed and replenished and ready for a brand new season of Classical Music Treats to keep you company through autumn.
2: In today's episode, Sam does a joint analysis with saxophonist and broadcaster extraordinaire Jess Gillam.
1: Tim visits a car park with Beethoven on his brain.
2: And we bring you our latest collection of home-crafted jingles.
1: We all know that's why you're really here. We're going to approach
2: news this week in the manner of a corporate CEO who has to tell off his employees but still wants to be liked, Mm. so bookends the meeting with two positive things. The
1: turd sandwich,
2: I like it. Mm -hmm. So to kick things off, in what is probably the best news of the whole summer, not one but two UK orchestras are permanently partnering with non-fee-paying schools. Mm. The OAE has moved from King's Place to a comprehensive school in Camden, and incredibly, the
1: CBSO
2: is starting its own music specialist school.
1: With the uh, projected move away from GCSEs, perhaps there'll be a return to CBSO levels. Mm, God. <laughs> Let's start with the OAE. We did a little digging and,
2: well, we went to their website and found that their chief exec, Crispin Woodhead, knowing the orchestra's contract with King's Place finished in September, had spent the summer pitching to nearby schools. It was Ackland Burley School in Camden that took up their offer, which makes perfect sense, seeing as the OEE has already been working for two decades with the Camden Music Hub and a whole bunch of local primary schools that feed into Ackland Burley. They'll rent out a couple of the school's offices, as well as their Grade 2-listed hall, Mm. with the help of a 120 k grant from the Lindbury Trust. In turn, the orchestra will work on a series of joint projects, the first of which starts in October, Covid-permitting.
1: Some of you might remember a conversation we had with the German conductor André de Ridder in June. He spoke very highly of the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie Bremen, who moved into a local comprehensive five years ago. Well, it turns out this was exactly Woodhead's inspiration – The benefits in Bremen have been huge for both parties. Students have shown improved academic performance, language skills, mental health and IQ scores. Also, according to some of the musicians, there's been an improvement in the Camaphilharmonies playing. Tim, you're planning on visiting Ackland burley at some point this year to see if everyone's settling in okay, aren't you? Mm-hmm, yes, yeah, so stay tuned for that. Let's also quickly mention what's happening with the
2: CBSO. In June, the Department for Education approved funding for the Shireland CBSO School, which will be a non-selective and non-fee-paying specialist music school in Sandwell. Great. Sandwell is one of the most deprived local authority areas in England, so the CBSO couldn't be a better place, basically. Mm. The school opens in 2021 for year 7 and year 12 pupils and will grow to a max capacity of 870
1: students aged 11 to 18 by 2025. Fantastic news. What a lovely way to open the podcast. Let's get on to the third part of our third sandwich. Can I request an angry newsbeat to fit it? Okay, yeah, let's get some uh, some heavy metal.
2: Last week, a survey of 2,000 Musicians Union members found that 34% are considering abandoning the industry altogether. 50% have already found work outside their industry, while 87% of those covered by furlough and self-employment support schemes say they will face financial hardship when the schemes end in October.
1: Just an aside here, does it count as abandoning an industry if that industry is evaporating because of unhelpful governmental regulation? We don't say that people have abandoned snowball fights if they're in a desert where there's no snow to go around. Adding to the strain, the new winter relief package announced by Chancellor
2: Rishi Sunak this week will not cover those self-employed who make up such a large proportion of the UK music industry, this despite its 5.2 billion value to the economy. To date, a third of Musicians' Union members have not been eligible for any Covid relief either because they are set up as limited companies or because their earnings are split between self-employment and non-furloughed taxed income, making them ineligible for
1: either. Things are looking even bleaker for employees at New York's Metropolitan Opera, which this week announced it won't be opening until September 2021. A first in the company's 140-year history, upholding its tradition of piss-poor communication. Staff and artists at the Opera House first heard of their demise via the press. Things aren't looking much better in Sydney. On Friday, Opera Australia announced that 16
2: salaried musicians are being made redundant, including violinist Rachel Easton. He's
1: been a member of the orchestra for 20 years. Over in Europe, a different set of issues are plaguing the arts world. A performance of Verdi's Un ballo Mascara was abandoned in Madrid's Teatro Real after audience members protested the theatre's lack of social distancing measures. Madrid's guidelines limit theatre occupancy to 75% of capacity, and in a statement the theatre insisted it had been operating at just 51.5%. However, those in the upper circle reported being crammed in 15 a time suggesting social distancing was deliberately limited to the expensive stall seats only.
2: Mm. Spanish opera fans can at least be grateful that the Teatro Real is still standing. Patrons of Moldova's National Philharmonic Hall awoke to news on Thursday that the building had burnt down after a seven-hour battle with firefighters.
1: A tragically fitting metaphor for the global arts situation at the moment.
2: It falls to the Germans to pick our mood back up after that deluge of bad news. To combat the restrictions put in place by Covid, Culture Minister Monika Grütkes has been allocated £1.94 in the German autumn budget. Since Grütkes became Culture Minister seven years ago, federal spending on culture has increased by 60%. We should be so lucky.
1: I'm playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. For this season of the Classical Music Pod, we thought we'd introduce a quizette, a micro-quiz for our listeners. You're about to hear all the right notes of a very famous melody, but not necessarily in the right order. At the end of the episode, we'll unjumble them and reveal what the melody was all along. Hopefully you'll have guessed it by then.
0: All the right
2: notes and all the wrong places. Can you guess what song it
0: is?
2: Go on then.
1: Jess, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We loved having you last time. You've been very busy since. Have you had a good summer? Have you had a chance for a break?
0: I've had a
3: lovely summer. I went um, up to my mum and dad's for three weeks up near the Lake District, which was just the best thing ever after being in London for months and months uh, to see scenery and to breathe that air, mainly. (laughs) Have you had a good summer?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have. I suddenly got away, went and saw the folks, and... It's just change of change of the four walls has been really important. Uh, I think I'm right in saying you're our first returning guest. So, uh, oh, I'm since honoured. You were, <laughs> since you were last here, you've had another virtual scratch orchestra track, Let It Be, and started drip-feeding everyone singles from your new album, Time. Uh, I've just grown a beard and learned how to bake, so, you know, different productivity. Um, are you excited for the album finally being out there?
3: I am excited, but I am also quite nervous I think it's that the classic second album syndrome where you can get away (laughs) with a lot on your first album and then the second album is you know I think people it feels very different but I'm, I'm really excited to share it with people
1: great well we thought as a returning guest it'd be fun to get you involved in one of our usual segments it's time for a bit of analysis Now, there is a danger that in analysing alongside you, I try to explain today's piece, Where the Bee Dances by Michael Nyman, to someone who knows it inside out and has recorded and performed it about as recently as anyone alive. So if I start samsplaining, just give me a virtual hit and tell me to, what I'm saying <laughs> is wrong, please, okay? Together, hopefully, we can share some of what makes this such a fun piece with the podcast listening. First of all, the funky title may or may not be a reference to something called the Waggle Dance. Jess, do you know anything about the waggle dance?
3: I know a little bit about the waggle dance. Um, Just from, I've watched quite a few videos and they're actually quite addictive. If you start watching them, you kind of, it's like watching a nature program where you just think, oh, isn't this just amazing? And then you think, actually, I was doing this for a reason. (laughs) You kind of have (laughs) to switch back on again.
1: (laughs) You've been down the same YouTube wormhole as I have. Uh, For (laughs) anyone who who doesn't know, uh, it is a lovely beer made by Eagle Brewery and we'd be very happy to take some sort of uh, donation from them if they wanted to do adverts. But the waggle dance is actually how bees indicate to one another that there is a new source of tasty pollen out there somewhere. And an explorer bee sort of does a little wiggly dance whilst on top of one of its friends to say, the bee, it's over there, the, the pollen. And it's an incredibly accurate code. It's very... Uh, we've worked out how to decipher it, so the bees obviously have. I thought there was this nice little parallel between us deciphering Michael Nyman's music and bees deciphering one another.
3: This is just one big waggle dance on a podcast. Just one <laughs> big waggle dance.
1: Here we see the British composer in his natural habitat carefully constructing a fast-paced concerto for soprano saxophone and orchestra.
3: There's no way I'm going to beat that. No. I've got... He's got, I, I like... You see, I feel like your accent is more suited...
0: <laughs> I'm
3: not going to make it. It's not going to happen.
1: When you start learning a big through-composed piece like Where the Dance Is, which is sort of a, a massive stream of virtuosity, do you think much about how it's being composed or do you just have to jump in with all the million and one notes to learn?
0: I
3: think it's a, a balance between the two. Um, obviously, there's a lot of technical work to do and... The kind of um almost mathematical side of learning the notes and learning the fingerings and how to get around um, certain passages, but then I'm const- it's constantly a balancing game between trying to create your own interpretation of it and also trying to recreate the composer's intentions. So I I did so when I first learned this piece and from the, um when I've played it ever since I did so much research on Michael Nyman. I just listened to everything. He'd every interview he'd I could find anywhere, every piece that he'd written, and I just wanted to get an idea of him as much as possible as a musician. So it's, yeah, a, a balance between the two, I think.
1: Yeah. In a way, you've got the ultimate resource in that you've got your teacher, John Hull, who the piece was written for in 1991. On the cover of the album I was listening to, he's got sort of weapons-grade jazz owl look with uh, the really funky glasses. And he worked with Nyman on a track called Where the Bee Sucks, which was composed for the film, a film adaptation of The Tempest. And um, this piece sort of grew out of that one, I think. You know, is it intimidating learning a piece with someone who it was written for? Is that a bonus? Does he give you advice on your glasses? What's the...
3: <laughs> You know, in a way, he does. So, um, <laughs> it was, uh, again, I kind of, I was super excited to learn with him because he, that was the first recording I'd ever heard and I knew that it had been written for him Mm. but I also wanted to form some of my own ideas before having lessons on it so I made a sort of conscious effort to try and create my own ideas about it and my own interpretation before having any lessons on that piece so that my interpretation didn't become a kind of copycat version of of John's I wanted it to be uh, I think that's one of the most magical things about music is that every interpretation is different so it was incredible to be able to speak to him but also Um, yeah, definitely intimidating to make sure that you're not (laughs) just trying to copy it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I found out he wrote the music for series two to seven of Silent Witness and that would intimidate me, I've got to say. If he's worked with Helen Miriam. Are you a
3: Silent Witness fan?
1: It's like a marker quality, isn't it? It's a good one. one. (laughs) They don't mess around on that programme. It's it's, it's good stuff. Like a lot of dances, where the B or WTBD isn't particularly harmonically complex, and it's sort of built up out of those four chords that we hear. Unfortunately, these aren't the four chords that make up every pop banger for the last 30 years. Instead, Nyman's chords sound like this. Jess, do you have a favourite four-chord chart smash hit?
3: You know, I would say this because we're talking about this piece, but I do think (laughs) there is something special about these four chords. It's maybe not a smash hit, but it's got the potential of being one. (laughs) um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, hey, now you're releasing it. It's going to be a chart (laughs) smash hit.
3: (laughs) What's your favourite four chord?
1: Well, Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy, I think, is era-defining for me.
3: I used to be obsessed with that album.
1: One of my favourite four chord moments in the beat is where that vertical harmony gets turned into sort of arpeggios and it sounds like a slightly jazzy Zadok the priest. If the piece isn't sort of harmonically driven, I reckon it's about momentum. And can I make my case to you? and see if you agree with me. Yeah. All right, that's very kind of you. So, yeah, I think much like Jeremy Corbyn and hurdling traffic bollards, where the bee relies heavily on momentum, building up from a static opening, that momentum is created by starting the bee's dance with seven quaver bars. When we're in normal times, does your dressing room say something like Jess Gillum saxophone on the front? It does. So could you say Jess Gillum saxophone?
3: Jess Gillam saxophone.
1: And if you just imagine Channel James Bond for a second... So it becomes Jess, Jess Gillum saxophone.
3: Jess, Jess Gillum saxophone.
1: And that's basically a 7-8 bar. Is That's how I define a 7-8 bar. Jess, Jess Gillum saxophone, Jess, Jess Gillum saxophone. Da, 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 da. I was wondering maybe if you were going to write yourself a theme tune, would it be in
3: 7-8? There is something very buoyant and joyous about 7-8 because it does have that slight... It's, you get to the end of the bar, and then it's just a bit of a a bit of a kick into the next bar. But I think it, I w- I'm I'm probably just more straightforward and just a bit four four.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Personality <laughs> type four <4-4. laughs> four. Okay, nice. Not even three four. Just no no. no. <laughs> just go in places. Um, how familiar are you with early twentieth century continental warm drinks?
3: Oh, absolutely a connoisseur.
1: So I'm sure you've heard of the Dutch cocoa brand Drust. No. Nope. <laughs> 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 Not a gun Strange. Of the... <laughs> no one no one I'm talking to us. Um, well, I reckon there is a connection between their the, the Drust and how Nyman maintains building up momentum. So the Drust effect is named after their 1904 packaging, which shows a nurse holding the a lovely warm cup of Drust, which is like, you know, hot chocolate. And then on that bottle is another Nurse holding a tiny thing and then on that bottle is another nurse holding a thing so it's like disappearing into it the antiquated visual effect that I'm spending so much time telling you about is kind of musically represented a little bit as well in that initial building up phase where there's you playing seven quavers at a time and then the violins are playing sets of seven semi quavers at a time which creates this amazing feeling of forward energy (laughs) In slow motion, it sounds like this. I've put the saxophone part an octave lower just to make it that little bit clearer. How aware of that rhythmic complexity are you or do you allow yourself to be when you're playing with the orchestra? You know, If, if someone wobbles a bit, does it all feel like it's coming unstuck?
3: Yeah, that can be a difficult moment because you have to be so tight within your own internal metronome and your own internal rhythm but also be very aware of what's happening so I spent a lot of time with the score just working out where my part and other parts align and they're really magical moments and you hear them subconsciously Mm. and you kind of feel them subconsciously as a listener but those moments of where those moments of togetherness that are coming in and out really actually stand out, but then when you don't quite hit them, it can be quite off
1: sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the joy of playing a piece lots and lots of times, I suppose, when it's live, is you get those different moments. Was there a different pressure when you're recording it to make sure that it's yeah you know, absolutely on the money?
3: Yeah, and it also just... It, you, you're you so right with the, the idea of momentum and forward drive. I mean, that was real... <laughs> that was a real... Um, I did a lot of reading around that and about how the sort of flow of minimalist music is really, um, it's such an essential part of it. And this, this state of Grazia, which is, um, Mm. it's a combination of something called decoro and Sprezzatura. So there's one that's really emotional and you're really emotionally involved and it's all about the expressivity. And then the other is super, super, super rhythmical and super, um, technical so that when the two are combined the audience and performer are lifted but it's this it's this idea of flow and things moving forward and and gaining momentum so it was quite difficult to replicate that in the studio when you don't have the connection but it was yeah so
1: much fun oh brilliant I just thought it was a glossy magazine but it's (laughs) so much more Uh, I really enjoy some of those subtle changes that Nyman makes when he's trying to keep the momentum building. Um, and around the five minute mark, there's that little seven, eight dross pattern is superimposed over the rest of the orchestra playing in four, four time. And that gives us a real little boom, because it's sort of one bar line ends before the next bar line. You get that, that kick on. And it really reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever played Mario Kart, but where you kind of get like a little booster and it just sort of zips you on the next thing. Little bullet bill. Here we go. Keeping up with all those cross rhythms and resisting their pushes and pulls must be fiendishly difficult I mean, especially if you're playing from memory Your head must just be all over the place
3: Yeah, it is but at the same time, everything does it does make sense when you, again, you physically feel those moments of where you're together and the memorisation of it was actually um... It was really difficult, but also in a way because everything's composed in cells and rhythmic blocks. If you can remember the rhythmic block and the order of the rhythmic blocks, everything does make sense because everything's so neatly organised into its own area. Everything's got its own cell and its own moment.
1: I'm imagining there's a sort of spreadsheet somewhere that you've drawn up or a back of an envelope with little (laughs) squares no, it's just, bit.
3: it's all on the music. I can't even see the notes anymore.
1: <laughs> it's wow. <just> <laughs> <laughs> it's all over the place. Amazing. My, I think my favourite bit of the piece is the ending, though, because you you don't lose any of that momentum. It just keeps going right up to the buffers, and you get that slightly weird harmonic moment, actually, ironically, and then it kind of just, doomf finishes. When you're recording that, and there isn't the audience to break the afterwards it must just be a slightly funky energy in the room where it's gone
3: yeah it's it it was quite strange actually i mean jonathan allen our producer is an absolute hero and he was just amazing in the session and you're working to limited time when you're in the recording studio so the first few times it'd be right back to the beginning and you kind of didn't have that moment but when it when it was right and you knew that the ending was right it was just this it's always a sense of um a release of tension and a real r- relief but i always think that bit at the end is i have really strong like visualizations for it so when i'm playing it starts up, when it's quiet that section starts it's really quiet and you have to feel i try and make the f- notes feel like running water so it's like you've just turned a tap mm. on but it's running really smoothly and then it just gets more and more and it's like suddenly you're at the edge of a cliff and the last note you've just been you're just at the moment where you're about to be pushed off the cliff but you never quite go there and then you're just kind of suspended in midair so it's quite it's quite a strange feeling but I think it's such an epic ending as well it's like the whole earth falls away and it's just like a gut-wrenching power to finish it's it, yeah. it was a pretty epic feeling to to record it in Abbey Road like that
1: <laughs> yeah of course what a space to be wily Coyote in and sort of just hang there <laughs> So aside from silly ideas about Dutch cocoa, what are the your top priorities when you're turning up with an orchestra? What are your first three bullet points?
3: It's really interesting because this is the kind of music that really relies on the musicians living the music. It it mm. it really relies on the relentless power and energy from every single part and every single player. And Nyman can be like Marmite. Some people just absolutely hate it before they've even heard the particular piece or played the particular piece and sometimes there's a bit of a barrier to get over with that to kind of get them on side and and want to play the piece well and want to play it with you Um, but it often depends on the conductor so I did a tour of it with uh, Gabor Takac and he was He is a conductor who shapes everything, and everything is so beautifully shaped, and there are all these pushes and pulls. So, we had quite a lot of conversations because this is the kind of music that's really quite direct Mm. and doesn't really have those sense the same romantic sense of shaping and of phrasing. And we ended up with such. I feel such an interesting interpretation because it was a combination of those two sides of looking at it, yeah. and so many conversations about what has to be done and what has to be brought to the orchestra and what the kind of what you're trying to achieve. So it's yeah, it depends on the orchestra and depends on the players and also on the hall because it can just sound like a big. It can sound really soupy if it's in an echoey space. Uh, yeah. So quite often it's just precision and precision, energy and drive are probably the main the main things I think.
0: Nice.
1: I watched you performing this piece a couple of times on YouTube, I think with Southbank Sinfonia and Tim Murray, who is uh, who is a Salisbury boy like Tim and me, but I think a few generations back. The thing that stands out about that performance is there's a shopping trolley on stage. Yeah. Uh, is there... I just... <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think you just leave that there. There is, yeah. There is. <laughs> no, we were doing it as part of... Um... So we'd already done a concert of it um, and we uh, with Southbank Symphonia and it was actually a great concert. They, they were doing all of these different, I think they were called lab concerts or lab spaces, where there was a different theme for each concert and this one was about um, colour and what musicians wear and whether what musicians are wearing and what the stage looks like changes the audience's perception of the music. So everyone was wearing all white, which was quite, um, I felt a bit like, Whitney Houston, George Michael, you know, mm. stood in front of an orchestra that were in fully all white. Um, but it was quite, it was quite interesting how much it does kind of change the, in a way, when you're watching, it does change the, the way you're perceiving it. Sometimes I think. Anyway, yeah. then we did, we repeated it at Barbican um, at an event where some people were playing shopping trolleys as part of a percussion group. Cool.
1: So, it was so there, just on the there is more to it than just. There is,
3: yeah. We didn't just bring a trolley. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, there's a lot of percussion. Do they get it? It'll be a useful way to get it on stage or something. I don't know. Um, I have one small quibble, which is this piece is all about that sort of like bang, gone energy. And um, that's kind of what happens when you've got those waggle dances and then everyone knows where the new pollen is and they all just zip off. And I wondered if you get, you know, just if you could maybe be the, the messenger, carry this from us to Michael Nyman, that just changing the title to Where Be Danced just <laughs> see see how I'll he is with him. it Yeah, yeah. Um, he's
3: quite he's quite open he's very <laughs> open to ideas so I'll, t- I'll tell them what you think and see where, where he says it goes <laughs> thanks
1: so much Jess so the album is time and it's out now everyone should go and get one and get a spare one for their nan as well composer fact file Michael Nyman Born
4: 1944, Stratford, London
1: His family were secular Jewish furriers who immigrated from Poland
4: He studied at King's College London and at the Royal Academy of Music In
1: 1965 he secured a residency in Romania to study folk song supported by a British council bursary
4: He settled into music criticism where he is generally acknowledged to have been the first to apply the term minimalism to music in a 1968 article in The Spectator magazine about the English composer Cornelius Cardew. In 1976,
1: he formed the Michael Nyman Band, which included antique instruments like rebecs and shawms, alongside modern saxophones and guitars.
4: He has scored many films, including the British sex comedy keep it up downstairs.
1: In 1993, the piano became one of the most successful film scores of all time, selling over three million copies.
4: During the 1970s, he was a member of the Portsmouth Symphonia, the self-proclaimed worst orchestra in the world, where players perform on instruments they haven't played before.
1: Nyman is a supporter of Queens Park Rangers Football Club and married with two adult daughters.
4: He once said,
1: I'm not a great inventor from scratch. What I do is to use, steal, acquire, reproduce, or recycle music from other musicians.
0: You got to pick a party or two.
2: Jeffrey Townsend's Gracie Films jingle, as heard at the end of The Simpsons, written in 1987. Shh. The Classic FM theme tune, written by David Arnold, sometime after 1992. Fugue on a theme of Classic FM by Daniel Swain, written in 2016. <laughs>
0: Got
1: to pick a Tim, you've got a doppel review for us. You've
2: been to two things. Mm, I went to two concerts, although only one was in person. Ah. The first was held in a South London car park and put Beethoven, darling of the classical tradition, front and centre. Mm. The second, which I went to digitally this morning, showcased the music of maverick American composer Julius Eastman and took place in the epicentre of the UK classical establishment, Wigmore Hall. A rather satisfying bit of symmetry there. Yeah, very satisfying. Mm. At Bold Tendencies in Peckham, Russian pianist Pavel Koletsnikov, Latvian violinist Alina Buksha, and French cellist Aurelien Pascal, played a 1992 piece by Avo Pert called Mozart Adagio and two piano trios that straddle the opposite ends of Beethoven's career. So the Opus 1, Number 3, from 1975, and the Opus 97, written in 1811. Mm. Now, we were in a car park with no outside walls next to a train line, which, in a strange way, is the appeal of these concerts. Yeah, I, I like the idea of taking something delicate or sacrosanct and plonking it in the middle of this hostile concrete environment. Hearing the notes isn't an issue because they mic the instruments really well Mm. and position speakers on the ceiling. But what that does give is a sort of neon sheen to the sound, which makes you feel a little like you've walked onto the set of Blade Runner.
1: Which is a long-term aspiration of mine. So maybe maybe I'll go along. How was the playing? The playing was
2: gorgeous throughout Kolesnikov, in particular, had this deafness of touch that somehow managed to simultaneously reflect the cold, hard surfaces of the space whilst imbuing it with warmth and feeling. Mm. (coughs) This is the pretentious police. We have deemed that comment pretentious. The highlight for me had to be the pet. It's essentially a transcription of the Adagio from Mozart's K280 Piano Sonata. Yeah. But it balances Mozart's composition with elements of Tintinabuli, which is the compositional style he developed in the 70s.
1: And not the ringing in your ears after a loud concert. No, no, no. no, Different thing.
2: What Peart does is add what he calls a commentary. He zooms in on the main harmonic theme in Mozart's Sonata, it's the clashing minor seconds, so just yeah. a semitone apart. And he peppers it throughout the score as a symbol of mourning for his friend, the Russian violinist Oleg Kagan. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Cajun, to whom this piece is dedicated. Hmm. It's genuinely unlike anything I've ever heard before, so I recommend listeners check it out if they haven't already. So
1: from a holy minimalist to an unholy one, tell me a bit about Julius Eastman. Mm,
2: This concert was from the UK-based ensemble Apartment House, who specialise in contemporary repertoire. Mm. It's the first, I'm doing quotes here, contemporary concert Wigmore have put on since they closed in March. And since listening to your excellent Julius Eastman analysis last season, when I saw he was included in their awesome season, I knew I wanted to go.
1: And which pieces by him did they perform?
2: Two works, Feminine and Joy Boy, mm. both of which he wrote and premiered in 1974. They're in the minimalist vein with scope for players to improvise or make their own decisions, much like in Terry Riley's In C, which was yep. written 10 years before and which I suspect was a big influence. The main event was Feminine which is a recorded sleigh bell drone and a 13-beat, two-note refrain on a vibraphone that lasts for the entire 70-minute duration of the piece. The other instruments, two flutes, two violins, a cello, a keyboard and a piano, fall in and out of the flow, roughly following a score that corresponds to times on a stopwatch.
1: Yeah, it's a really different way of processing time in music, isn't it? It's, I think, a really great compositional idea.
2: Yeah, completely new to me. The score itself mostly sticks to the notes of a minor pentatonic scale, and it contains written instructions like pianist will interrupt <laughs> as well as like various performer choices. So you might be able to choose the octave or note selection from a given
1: chord. Mm. It sounds like it must be really fun to perform and play.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's two things that set this music apart from other minimalist epics. Mm. Firstly, it's an early example of what Eastman called organic music, where the score allows for all previously played material to be present in later stages of a performance. And secondly, it's much looser. Yeah, As Philip Glass's music in Twelve Parts, for example, is really regimented and deliberate, whereas Feminine kind of slinks about. Yeah, often the parts don't quite line up, and you get huge, great clashes. And there's a real wildness to the music, kind of like almost a comedy. Yeah, and apparently at the premiere in Albany, Eastman played piano whilst wearing a dress and serving
1: soup. The obvious combo.
2: Yeah. There's a great recording on the Frozen Reeds label of this performance. I think the only recording where where we hear the audience crack up as Eastman cues the mechanical sleigh bells. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's very good. Mm. Very
2: funny. I find that interesting because he's known as this politically zealous in-your-face figure. I mean, Mm. just look at some of the titles of some of his works, which we won't repeat. But it's in pieces like this that you get to see his playful sense of humour.
1: Yeah, a very complex character. As you say, he's got those zealous sides and then also real lightness and real spirituality i think as well but um did you actually enjoy it well yes and no ah.
2: <laughs> as i said earlier i was listening from my bedroom with headphones on i think that the playing was excellent and the commitment and the passion of the players was fantastic but i think this concert is the perfect case study for why the digital experience can never match being there in person Feminine is deliberately trying to lull you into a meditative cocoon-like state, but without that shared intensity you get from being in the room with the players, you end up drifting up and out instead. Mm. And because you've used up your energy trying to zone in, match that on-screen intensity, by the end you're completely drained, which is the complete opposite of the sense of renewal that I guess Eastman is trying to guide you into.
1: Yeah, anyone who's spent a lot of time on Zoom will be able to empathise, I think.
2: There we go. So over in Peckham, despite all the noise, that shared intensity that was there meant that both audience and players could transcend or even utilise the various urban distractions that surrounded us. A siren was battered off with a smile or a, like a chilly breeze becomes another layer in the texture of the music. Mm. It's a bit like that tired feeling you get after you've gone for a run, the combination of fatigue and endorphin rush that leaves you feeling satisfied, whereas the digital concert experience is like the exhaustion but without the high, and that was only exacerbated by the fact that Feminine lasted for 70 minutes with a continuous sleigh bell going through it. So did I enjoy it? Yes and no, but I'm only equivocating because I wasn't there. It's in no way the fault of the performers, but as we know already, digital can never match being there in real life and doubly so if the work being performed is a minimalist epic drop it it isn't worth it and actually you're not very good at it
1: I don't have any thank yous this week because I did everything myself. What about you, Sam? You are a superstar, Tim. Stick in your work ethic. Thank you. I do have a couple of thank yous. One to Jess and one to Rebecca. Thank you so much for helping get that over the line and coming and you know, taking a risk and doing some weird analysis with me. Really enjoyed it. And a big thank you to Lauren, our resident bee expert from Bristol University, who's Wonderful fact that bees like to sleep in pairs, holding each other's feet, arrived just too late for me to share it with Jess, but I can share it with you all through this yeah, medium
2: here. No, there was a good buzz around that review. Oh, that's, that's very bad
1: indeed. <laughs> We're going to finish up today by popping over to the birthday department.
2: Yeah, we got some freshies in. Apparently, Toru Takamitsu's birthday is on the 8th of October. Uh, ra- I don't know how to say his first name.
1: I go think on. it's Aino Ratavara. Ainho
2: Ratavara and Camille Sanson are on the 9th. Verdi, his birthday is on the 10th, and that's one that he shares with Stephen Gately of Boyzone. Yule Brunner, Edith Piaf Orson Welles, Marvin Gay Sr., who is the priest that killed Marvin Gay, his dad, and Harold Pinter. There you go.
1: Oh, and do you have a David Attenborough impression that you're proud of?
0: Not that I'm proud of.